It's time for the sermon. You may have noticed this is not an authentic hat. And you may have noticed that I don't have an authentic German accent. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to proceed in Martin Luther in my own dialect. Oops, wrong pocket. Good morning. <laughs> my name is Martin Luther. And um, this morning, what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is give you my testimony. It's important that you know it. It's important that you understand something of it. But the main important thing is that you, f- is that you find out what I found out. You know, I thought the printing press was kind of cool, but you guys have all kinds of stuff, you know? <clears throat> but you have to turn them on. We never had to turn on books in 1517, you understand. I was born in 1483 in Eisleben. It was a copper mining town. My father was a copper miner, and he was very poor. Um, But over the course of his life, he was a—listen, he was a hard German man. And he worked, and he worked, and he worked. And by the time I was a young man, he was—we were not in squalor of poverty. Um, And what made him an especially difficult and hard father— also made him a relatively successful businessman. And he recognized fairly early on that I, his oldest son, um, had some capacity. And he thought that rather than me working the copper smelts as I got older, that I would make for a better lawyer than that. And so he sent me off to grammar school, and I grammared in German and Latin. And then I went on to a city called Erfurt for, um, for college studies. Now, if you don't know anything about Germany, particularly Germany in 1517 in that, that sort of era, you'd say, oh, yes, you went some, from... I still been to Erfurt. Well, that tells me a lot. Well, here's what you need to know. I was born in a very small town. Erfurt was like going to the big city. Now, the big city in those days was 20,000 people. But it was still the big city. There was more than one church. The University of Erfurt was known throughout Europe as some of the cutting-edge theology and writing and teaching of the time. And, um, you know, I kind of lagged my first year, didn't do that well. But by the time I graduated with my master's degree, there were 300 applicants for the degree. Only 17 graduated, and I was second among them. And so my lawyer future was pretty bright. And my dad's hope for our family through that was pretty, was pretty bright. But about that time, um, I had two kind of close encounters with death. Really more than that, but two with me. Uh, my, my senior year of my master's degree, I was walking home in a field and I just fell, um, which normally doesn't, you know, bring you with an inch of your life. But um, in those days, we used to carry daggers on our front hip and it fell out as I fell. And it impaled itself on the inside of one of my legs. And I just about, just about died from that wound. And there's something about being really close to death that'll sober you, Right? But one of the things that you need to know about me is that I, I didn't really need that to sober me. Um, historians today will write about me like I was some kind of neurotic idiot that needed some pills. Um, but but you, you need to understand some things about my time before you can really understand the second close encounter I had with death. You see, I lived in an age where people believed in God. Okay, It's hard for you to imagine living in an age where people believed in God. Now, I know what you, you probably think you do believe in God, and you know that the national surveys of your country say something like, um, you know, only, though 15% don't claim to have any religion, only 1.6% of people actually claim to be atheists. But let me just tell you, 
in this day and age, I just, I'm just going to tell you from a man from another century, just about all your atheists. I mean, we lived, you just didn't mind it, we lived with a consciousness that God was there every minute. We lived with a consciousness of him creating everything, everything belonging to him, him having sovereignty over everything, that he stood seeing every intuition of our heart, every movement that we made, every decision that we took, every sin that we committed, and that he was returning in white hot glory to judge everything, living and dead, to cast all the unrighteous and wicked into an eternal torment in a very real hell, and to bring some, though few, according to our knowledge as Catholics at the time, into a glorious place of heaven. We existed in that moment all the time. I mean, we sold wheat thinking about that. We smelted copper thinking about the fires of hell. We lived in a time where we actually believed in God. Y'all believe in God. And so I had this, I walked around with this consciousness of God sort of laying on me all the time. And you got to understand, we, we were at age when, you know, you all go to Europe now and walk through the churches and go, oh, isn't that pretty? Look at that little fresco. But you, in my day, we painted these pictures because this was the theology that was on our mind. You got to remember, the big mural in the most famous chapel of the Renaissance, the Sistine Chapel, it's the judgment. <laughs> That's what we painted. We painted Jesus coming back and winnowing out humanity. And if you look at who's saved, who's there with Jesus, it's just the martyrs. <laughs> That's the only people who make the cut. The guy who got skinned alive, St. Bartholomew, right? He gets right into heaven. Well, that's fantastic. So you got to get skinned alive. I mean, th and then everybody else, just about, they're falling off the clouds and getting wrapped up by snakes. I mean, y'all y'all lived after some guy named Freud, and you just think that all this kind of anxiety is nonsense because some, well, sorry for that other German guy, just told, I mean, uh, Austrian technically, right? So, um, <laughs> just told you, you know, fear and anxiety, just get rid of all that stuff. Just don't, just, if you stop paying attention to it, it'll eventually go away. If you just tell yourself you're fantastic, then you won't have any problems. But you need to understand, the world I lived in was a world in which my religious consciousness was, I am going to hell. I was terrified. One of the reasons for that is, is that the way our, our religion was taught by the church in my time, which had corrupted over particularly over the last couple hundred years, basically taught that God gives us grace. God is loving, and God will help you meet the requirements of salvation, but that God will only improve on what you do first. And so our theologians said things like this, God gives grace to magnify and perfect human contributions, right? You and I do all we can, and if we do all we can, then God will add to it enough for us to be saved, at least to the point of getting into purgatory and only being tortured for a couple of thousand years. Or God helps those who do what they can. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I heard this in church, in university, reading in my books. If I do my best, God will help me do better. Do what lays within you. This one was the most common one. Do what lays within you and God will do the rest. God gives grace to improve those who love him and hate sin. Now, you all have a patron saint who said something like this. Right? God helps those who help themselves. How many good God-fearing American Christians believe that that's in the Bible? I mean, it's probably right after the verse that says something like, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness, you know? 
I just tell you, in my day, it was okay to stink to high heaven. That had nothing to do with whether you were going to heaven. You see, the reason that I was an anxious youth wasn't because I had all these neurotic problems mainly. It was because most of the people in my age heard this theology and they didn't pay much attention to it or they put it in the back of their mind or they just didn't think about these things. One of your greatest theologians, a guy named Jonathan Edwards, once said in a sermon that's fairly well known, he said, almost every natural man or any unconverted person who hears about hell just flatters himself that he shall escape it. They don't think about it. My problem was I thought about it. Our murals said it. Our theologians wrote it. They constantly told me that if I worked hard enough, then God might help me. But how hard is hard enough? How much is enough? How good is good enough? I mean, you could never know. All I could do was speculate that maybe, maybe I'd be good enough. But you know what? I wasn't good enough. I was constantly anxious and in fear, and that led to being depressed. My professors thought there was stuff wrong with me. And then, one of my friends, a friend named Alexis, was killed by lightning. And just a little while after that, I was, I was home between breaks, and I was, I was traveling, and it was a pretty sunny day. Then all of a sudden, it got overcast, and then all of a sudden, there was a thunderstorm, and it started to rain, and then all of a sudden, there was lightning very close, and one hit nearby enough to knock me down. I had a friend died a few weeks ago of being struck by lightning. I mean, I thought that maybe this was God's judgment. And so I cried out to the only person— you don't cry out to God in my day. God was too far away. We cried out to saints. And so I cried out to the saint of minors. Saint Anne, I yelled yelled as loud as I could. Saint Anne, help me. I will become a monk. Which, you know, in retrospect might be a little rash. But, you know, it's almost 500 years of retrospect now. So, I talked to some people. I survived, obviously. I talked to some people about the vow. And some of the people said, ah, it was rash. It was lightning. You shouldn't do it. And, um, but some people said, it's a vow, you have to keep it. But here's, here's, here's the dirty little secret of all this. I had to become a monk anyway. If God will save those who work hard, and you're terrified that you're not working hard enough, what can you do but become a monk? What can you do but join an order of people who spend every minute, day and night, week in and week out, all the time, constantly, trying to please God. And so I went to the monastery in Erfurt, which was an Augustinian order, and I took vows. I was a novice for a year, and then I came in as a full monk. And, and listen, I, um, I was a killer monk. I was a killer monk. We, um, whoops. In those days, we, uh, we were serious about monkishness, and um, listen, we lived on two light meals a day. Um, I mean, you saw, you see, most of you see pictures of me after the Reformation when I got kind of chubby, but back in, back in the monastery days, that was not the case, buddy. All right, I mean, we just had two short meals. We had, lo- I was in church six hours every day. Not only that, we had church twice in the middle of the night. So we'd get up at like 3 a.m. and have church, right? 
because we were trying to do it. You know what I'm saying? Um, we had vigils. Sometimes we prayed all through the night. We, our monastery, because we were so devoted to God, was committed to never having heat. Okay? I lived in a stone room in North Germany. And, we, and remember, we shaved most of the hair off the top of our heads. It's freezing. I mean, you think Wisconsin is bad. Whew. And we were, we had no pride. We were reduced to total begging and poverty. We had nothing. We had no personal possessions. We lived in absolute obedience to our abbot and rector. And we did all these things. I did all, and I did them as well as I could do them. And you know what the result of it was? Do you think I found peace? I didn't find peace. I found that with all of that work, starving myself half to death, freezing half to death, going to church six hours a day, staying up through the night, I still didn't, I still didn't feel like I knew God's expression towards me was one of love. And I started to have the sneaking suspicion that maybe all my fear and doubt and anxiety was just prejudgment. That God had already thrown me in the garbage of hell, and this was just the first fruits of that. This is just the appetizers. That it, was, it wasn't the devil causing me to feel anxious. It wasn't, it was God. And I was getting to the point where I couldn't tell the difference between God and the devil. And so there was a thing they did with nervous people in those days, particularly monks. Um, they sent us to the sacrament of confession. Because the whole idea is it's kind of objective. You confess your sins to somebody. They pronounce Christ's absolution over you. They tell you to do some kind of penance that shows that you're serious about it. And then, and then you've heard from the clergy person that you're absolved, right? So I went to that, and I went all the time. In fact, I once went to confession for six hours. Just trying to come up with thoughts and things from my past and things that God could condemn me for because of his great, his righteousness, anything that could possibly. And finally, people wouldn't hear my confession, any, my confessions anymore. Because I was just, but see, here is the catch with confession. Confession only worked if you were sincere. All the priests said that. But the assumption was, if you did the penance, then you were sincere. But come on, Really? I was sincere about all these sins if I prayed a, a certain number of short prayers. I mean, really, if, if, if my salvation depends upon my sincerity, that's just as tricky a footing as if it sits on my good works. Isn't it? How could you know if you're sincere enough? Didn't help me. Listen, this was a horrible time in my life. Horrible. And my own father believed that my calling to be a monk was of the devil. And that it was sin just to be in the monastery. And that was hanging over me every minute of this. The only really great grace of all this time was the guy that was my abbot and put in charge of me spiritually was a man named Johann von Stauffitz. And he was a really caring Augustinian monk. And he pointed me in two directions. He said to me, Martin, don't think about Jesus mainly as the conquering judge because it's killing you. Instead, think about Jesus on the cross. And he gave me a crucifix to wear so that instead of thinking constantly of God as this coming judge, that I would think of Christ on the cross as an expression of God's love to humanity. But that was still too general, you see. It was still too general for me. <clears throat> about this time, he made another change in my life. Um, I found in the monastery library a copy of the Bible in Latin called the Vulgate. 
Now you need to understand, you could become a monk if you'd never been to school. So we had, but we had lots of illiterate monks in our monastery. I mean, virtually nobody had a master's degree. I was weird. And I was in the library and I found this Latin Bible. And you need to understand, I had never read the Bible. I had read quotations from it in, my, in, in classes or heard them in churches. Even in the monastery, I'd hear the Psalms read sometimes in the Psalter or something. But we didn't read the Bible. Right? And so I started reading it in my spare time, but most of my time was taken up doing monkish tasks like sweeping and cleaning pots. And Johann von Sauwitz um, decided it would be my duty to the Augustinian order, instead of sweeping and cleaning, it would be my duty to study and memorize the Bible. And he changed what I was doing and, and put me in charge of studying and reading the Bible. And so I began to read the Bible for the first time in my life. It was amazing. But you need to, one of the things you need to understand is, is that the Vulgate itself, which was the translation everybody used, was itself a thousand years old. Jerome had translated it from the original languages into Latin in the fifth century. Now can you imagine if, can you imagine going online and picking up a bunch of thousand-year-old early English poetry and trying to read it? It's not even the same language. It's the same language technically. But in a thousand years, a lot changes. In fact, in 1490, an Oxford professor once once got a copy of the Greek New Testament and he read it and compared it to the Latin Vulgate and he wrote in his diary that night, he said, either the Greek Bible is not the gospel or we are not Christians. So much had there been problems with the translations and so on. So even though I was reading the Latin, Latin Vulgate and I was learning some things and I was seeing a lot of things, there was this veil there that still existed even though I was good in Latin. And the big change finally came when Staupitz realized that if I was really going to help the order, then I needed to do a doctorate in theology because my master's was all in liberal arts. I'd never studied theology. I just started reading the Bible. A monk, being a monk didn't make you a theologian. And so he sent me to this tiny little podunk university that had just been started by a guy named Frederick the Wise called Wittenberg. And um, it was building up, and I went there to get, take a doctorate in theology, but very soon I was instructed by the faculty to begin lecturing on the Bible in the morning. And so while I was working for the two years on my doctorate in theology, I began lecturing on the Bible. And I'd been an Augustinian monk. I mean, the scriptures we read over and over and over again were the Psalms. So I started with lecturing on the Psalms. And I got copies for my students, and they had half a page to write notes in. And I started teaching them not to just read the Psalm merely devotionally, but to look at what is taught in it. Look at the theology of it. And you might not think, oh, the Psalms, that's going to create a big breakthrough with the gospel. But it did. And here's, here's why. All my life, I had thought in terms of seeking God's blessing by giving God an offering— Right? I would do something. I would act in a certain way. I would do a good deed. I would do whatever was within me. I would offer that to God, and then God would graciously perfect it and mag magnify it. And so I went to the Psalms, and I saw these prayers of people, how they talked to God, how they asked God for salvation. And you know what I found was? They didn't make any kind of offering. They just pleaded for help. One of the really famous psalms is this one, Psalm 51. This comes right after David had, you know, slept with Bathsheba and had an illegitimate child and killed her husband, right? And listen, listen to how this reads. And you tell me if this is a person who is offering something to God or, or somebody who has nothing to offer, who is pleading for God to simply give him what he needs. Have mercy on me, O God. 
according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my transgressions and my sin is, now listen, is always before you. Where does that language come from? That language comes from the Old Testament, where offerings would be put where? They would be put before God in the temple. They were, they were put before, they were the offering given to him. Now what David is saying is he's saying, my life is essentially an offering of sin. What you constantly see on the altar of my life is garbage. I'm recognizing I have no offering. In fact, I do have an offering, and the offering is insulting. My offering is sinful. My offering is disgusting. It would be better if I had no offering. The problem is I do have an offering, and it's rotten. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak, and you are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful from birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. You see the logic? You see, God works first, and then I would do something. If God would save me, then I might be transformed enough to teach a sinner about him. I had always been taught, go teach the sinner, do some great work for God, and then God would bless you. It's totally the opposite. <clears throat> do you know what I found out? You see, even in my day, humility was thought to be a virtue. <laughs> a work. I, I have the virtue of humility. Do you, you, you see? Essentially, essentially, Humility, humility became our cry to God, a kind of offering. And what I realized was the proper cry to God was not that a man had proper virtue, but that a man had properly lost all hope in his virtue. See, the very place of the heart that was meant to put us in absolute despair so that we could actually be humble, that is, ha realize we have no good offering to God, had turned into a work that we offered to God so that there was no place left in the human mind at all to be in the place where God could save us. And we just read over all the places where Jesus said things like, I've come to help sick people to people who thought they were well. And I found, reading the Psalms and then reading the Gospel, that God only heals the sick. He only gives wealth to the poor. He only raises those who know they're dead. And that, that was half of it. That was half of it. Knowing that I could never create the offering that all of my, all of my fathers in the faith had told me I had to create. But that, 
I mean, in one sense, that's better. In another sense, that's worse. Because the, the, the coming king who will judge in white-hot righteousness, what will his righteousness do to me who has nothing? Although I realized I could not work it, it was also worse despair than before. But as I kept, re- kept reading the New Testament, you know what I kept hearing? I kept hearing this idea that what was in the New Testament was good news. Right? How is this good news? One of the things you have to know about my time is there was something else going on while this stuff was going on inside me. Now, they call it humanism now, um, but academically, that word has gotten so mixed up. All it really meant was what we would call, t- what you would call today classicism. That is, th- turning back to the ancient world and reading its documents. There was, uh, Greek had died and Latin had become the, the language of the world in academic circles. And people said, no, 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 wait. The works of Aristotle that we're studying weren't written in Latin, they were written in Greek. The Bible that we're studying in Latin, it wasn't written in Latin, it was written in Greek. The church fathers who we turned to to come up with what we believe at all of our councils, they didn't write in Latin. Most of the earliest ones wrote in Greek. And so there was this reflowering of the Greek language. There was this re-understanding that, well, wait, wait a second. What if we read the Bible not in Latin? What if we, that's a thousand-year-old translation. What if we went backwards and read everything in Greek again? Read Aristotle again in Greek? Read the Bible again in Greek. And what happened was, and there were a number of New Testaments that came out in Greek, and I learned Greek voraciously. And in 1516, um, a monk from the Netherlands called Erasmus of Rotterdam published a new Latin translation of the New Testament on one page with the Greek New Testament on the other page. And it was a good translation, and it was a good Greek New Testament. And here's how you know this was, this was big for me. That was 1516. When did the light break upon me? When did I nail the theses at Wittenberg? 1517. When I got the Greek Bible, I began to notice passages like this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners— Christ died for us. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Now think about that. Christ died for us. Whatever happened that was good happened while we were God's enemies. The passage that finally was what this all came down to was this passage. Romans 1, verses 16 to 17. This is where it all started. You having an English Bible today, us, you understanding the gospel as you do, it started in a cold room with a Greek Bible and these two verses. They said this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. I had no idea what that meant. My whole life, I had been taught to think that meant something else than what it plainly means. 
For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Then verse 17, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Now think about that. Verse 17 starts with the wrath of God, right? And if you know the book of Romans, there's nearly three chapters of investigation and discussion about God's wrath. So it would make sense that you would think of verse 16 in relation to that. So if the righteousness of God is being revealed, how is it being revealed? It's being revealed in the wrath of God, right? Which is what all the doctors taught me. All the priests taught me. All the services, all the masses taught me that the the righteousness of God is being revealed because his wrath is coming into the world. In all of the bad things that happen and ultimately in his coming judgment on the final day. And so, and so, I hated the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God spoke a word to me. It was a word of doom. It spoke a word to all humanity. The wrath of God is being revealed against all the unrighteousness and wickedness of men. And the whole logic of all of Romans 1 to 3 is that it includes everyone. You are part of the wicked in that verse. I am part of the wicked. And the wrath of God is being revealed. And this is the great glorious revelation of the righteousness of God. Aren't you glad? But at one point I realized that there was a section change from the quotation to the next verse. That the quotation from the Old Testament was the proof of the truth of the sentence before it, and that that sentence was the thesis of the whole book, not the section. That verse 16 was not an introduction to Romans 1 to 3. Chapter 6, verse 16, was an introduction to the whole book of Romans, which was supposed to be telling us good news. And what I realized was, the gospel, the word that means good news, is itself a righteousness from God that is revealed. The good news, and so I realized there was a second righteousness in play. That the righteousness, that the righteousness to be understood was not merely the righteousness that caused judgment rightly, but there was another righteousness, a new kind of righteousness that in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, was being revealed, and it was a new kind, it was a given righteousness. It wasn't being earned, it was being shown. And it was being received not by our offerings that God would perfect, but it was being revealed by faith. That is, humility, the loss of all claim to being able to say anything, and trust. Because the Old Testament itself had said, the righteous person will live by good deeds, The righteous person will offer something to God. No, the the Bible says the righteous person shall live by faith. A number of years later, I wrote about this event, and I wrote that it was like the light of heaven breaking in on me. It was like the stone of of Sisyphus on my back for a hundred years had been relieved. It was like I I could—and friends, let me just tell you, 
I've fought Europe for a generation over this verse. I was under threat of death my whole life from this moment till the day I died because of what that verse really says. That though there is a true righteousness of God that brings wrath, there is another application of righteousness that comes by Christ and is received by the wicked sinner who is God's enemy, who is you and me, and is freely given simply by trust from a place of humility where we recognize we offer nothing. And that that brings a righteousness and it is, says later Romans, the righteousness of Christ. Or said a different way, that makes one as righteous as Christ. Friends, Christ did not spend two millennia in purgatory. Christ's righteousness is the righteousness of God. You have, if God's righteousness is what is put upon you, you have nothing to fear from its coming. And it is the only thing that can keep you from fearing its coming. And this is exactly what Augustine, whose order, my monkish order was named after, said. In his great confession, he said, God, give what you command and then command whatever you will. God commanded in us a perfect righteousness, fitting with his perfect righteousness, but he has given what he has commanded freely in the death of Christ so that we can receive it simply by trust. Because those who are sick, he has come to heal. Those who are in poverty of spirit, he has come to make rich. Those who are dead, he has come to make alive those who are his enemies. He has come to make their friend. And all of this came through the Bible. All of this came by me claiming the written word of God back for my own life. It came by looking there myself. And so this morning, let me just leave you with this because we probably won't meet again until you're dead. The Bible, your neighbors and the leaders of, many of the leaders in your culture would tell you that the Bible is a passe book. It is an ancient book filled with primitive ideas that we are now well beyond. But I would tell you that the heirs of Freud have not yet made it to the peaks of Augustine and he had not yet walked the top of the wisdom mountain of Christ himself. The Bible is an unspeakable treasure. And you, American Christians, have grown up with it laying in your language about your houses. What would you expect a child to think if he grew up around gems? If he would throw them at his sister at mealtime? You'd think nothing of it. He grew up around gems. How would he know any better than that this is a precious thing? And you are like those people. You have grown up around the most, most unspeakable treasure prepared and offered to you in some of the most perfect translations humankind has ever had. And they are weighted with dust upon your shelves. Some of the most 
pitifully inane TV shows rapture your attentions more than the basic sentences of salvation and the escape of damnation and the open access to the glories of Christ forever than his imputing and giving of his righteousness to you. (laughs) Can you imagine? And in that Bible, you should find the one greatest truth that God demands a perfect righteousness from humanity. He does. And that righteousness he was also glad to give humanity in Jesus Christ and him alone that can be received simply by nothing more than admittance of your place and just trust in his gift. I'll leave you with two of my quotes. For those of you who would delay in receiving this gift, I wrote once, How soon does not now in the soul become never? And after years and years of people chasing my life and hunting me like a criminal, at the end of my life I wrote this. I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, mainly my hope for my own salvation, I still possess. Father, our great Lord and giver of the great salvation of Christ and his righteousness, we pray that you would put us in a place of proper humility, that we would not think of it as some virtue, but as a place of recognizing we have no virtue. Oh God, would you give us the freedom of accepting that we are unrighteous, natural enemies of you, with no virtue of our own, and that that the salvation that we can receive from our guilt and anxiety does not come from our flattering of ourselves that we would ignore, that we would escape hell, nor the flattering of ourselves that we shouldn't feel guilty because it's just a mere concoction of human psychology, but that we would escape from realizing that you have freely given unrighteous enemies that are ungodly the righteousness of your son Christ by sheer faith. Help us to be a people who don't, who don't trust Aristotle over the Bible and believing that people who go, do good things become good. But let us believe the Bible's notion from Christ that it is you who through faith make the righteous good. You who through faith make the unrighteous good men. They live by faith. And then they slowly become what they've been declared but that we will always be justified sinners. And Father, fill our hearts with waves and waves of gladness and hope and thanksgiving for merely what Christ and Christ alone has done for us because you have freely given to us what you've commanded from us. Amen.